Now, if you want to turn to Joshua chapter 8, where we'll pick up this morning, um, we left off Joshua chapter 7 last week, and I think I mentioned this last week that um, Joshua chapter 7 and 8 um, are uh, two chapters of this story in Joshua's life that really could have uh, been just kind of shoved together. They do very much tie together. They're connected to one another. Um, and, uh, but as uh, just in the, you know, being thoughtful of, of all of you, I didn't try and preach Joshua 7 and 8 together. Uh, so we divided that up into two sermons uh, so that we could ensure uh, that you got out of here at a certain, a decent time. But these stories really do uh, go together. And in Joshua chapter 7, in case you weren't with us and uh, you haven't read that, you can go back this week and read that. But Joshua chapter 7, we see the Israelites, their first defeat within the promised land. They had gone into Jericho and easily taken Jericho because God had told them this is what he was going to do. He had promised that, jo- that Jericho would fall into their hands. He told them what to do, exactly how they were to um, accomplish that. And then they responded, they did that, and Jericho falls. But then in chapter 7, they come to another city, the next city uh, within the promised land called Ai, and they're, they, they uh, send some spies. Joshua sends some spies to kind of check out this city and says, hey, how are we supposed to handle this? They think, oh, this will be no problem. They just, Joshua, don't even send the whole army. Just send a couple thousand of us. They go up there and they ultimately they face defeat. 36 of their men are killed and they come back and they have no idea why. Of course, they uncover, as we looked at last week, they unpack the reason why. And that was because a man named Achan had sinned. Back in Jericho, he had been told, all of the Israelites had been told, that they were not to take anything, any of the spoils of that city, in a sense. They were supposed to destroy everything that they came in contact with. But Achan, he had, of course, been wandering in the desert for much of his life. Probably hadn't had a good full meal in some time, didn't really have anything of his own possession and thought, well, maybe I do need to just take a little bit of this so that I can ensure, probably even well-meaning, that I can take care of my family, that I can provide for them. But he was disobedient to what God had said. And we learned from chapter 7 the hard lesson, a lesson that we still need to be learning today, I think, over and over again, is that God is more concerned with our holiness, the holiness of his people, the set-apartness of his people than he is anything else. He will deal with all of the evil and all of the enemies and everything. As we just sang, at a word, the enemy will fall and everything that is not the way that it should be will be the way that God intends it to be. But in order for him to bring that about, his purposes and the way that he seems to sort of make that happen or bring that into fruition is that his people would live holy lives set apart from the world. And that's what he cares most about. And so because he cares most about that, he wasn't going to give Israel a victory when there was disobedience. I didn't read this last week, but I could have referred to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a New Testament text that sort of supports this same idea. Paul writing to the Corinthian church, a very worldly city that had a church had been planted there, and they were dealing with a lot of challenges in terms of allowing the sinfulness of the world to creep into their lives. And this is what he says when he's dealing with sexual immorality within the camp, within the people of God. And he's told them in dealing with that particular sin and really just encompassing all sins in verse 12, he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's a question. Paul's saying this to the church. It's not... Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? We've heard over and over again that we should not judge anyone. But Paul gives very explicit instructions that is God who judges the outside, but we must, as he says, purge the evil person from among you. 
We have to deal with the sin from within the camp. And so, yes, in our own lives, we should examine our own hearts. We should look at our lives and say, are we being obedient? Is there a holiness? Are we set apart from the world? Because that's what God cares most about. That isn't a call, by the way. Paul isn't commanding that everybody walks around judging everyone, pointing the finger. In that sense, there's a lot of ways that the New Testament church is instruction on how to deal with sin, but it is very clear that the principle is this. We're not to be so concerned with what's going on outside of the church. We're to be concerned primarily with what's going on inside the church, beginning with our own hearts and then in the lives of those that we're in community with and in relationship with. And so we see that back in Joshua chapter 7. And we can become so consumed, I think, with the sins of the world around us that we forget the calling on our own lives. We can forget that. We, are, we can become preoccupied with everyone else. And isn't it easier to always be pointing the finger outside? Isn't it easier to always look at those who are not like us, those who believe differently than us, those who act differently than us. And just, it's, it's, it's so easy for us to be tempted into that. And what God is calling us to do is to look at our own hearts, examine our own hearts and minds, and ask ourselves, are we being obedient? We should deal with our own sins before we look outside. So as we now come to chapter 8, We're going to see how God deals or how God responds to us when sin is dealt with. See, at the end of chapter 7, Achan and his entire family is put to death because of the sin that he committed against God's people. The sin in the camp is dealt with at the end of chapter 7. And if we look at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given it into your hand, the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and his king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Following the typical pattern of Joshua that I think you probably have figured out thus far, the first couple verses, maybe one verse or two verses, God gives a summary of the chapter, exactly what's going to happen. He responds to Joshua, he gives Joshua a promise, and then in three through following, we see the details worked out of exactly how God accomplished what he told Joshua to do and what he was instructed, how he was to carry out this attack, how he was supposed to deal with this city. But as we think about Keeping in mind the sin of Achan, again, chapter 7 and chapter 8 go together. We have the sin of Achan that caused the destruction of Israel, the harm to come to Israel. And now the sin was dealt with, and now God is responding. And so we still have this one city that he's dealing with. As we think about this, there's a very clear contrast that perhaps you might be thinking of. Think about Rahab. If we go back to the story of Rahab, she was a Canaanite. She was someone from the people who God had sent the Israelites in to destroy. Her people had sinned against God for generation upon generation. She, there was no reason for her to have hope. She was a Canaanite. And yet, because she had seen all that God had done, the God of Israel had done, and heard the stories of all that God had done, she exercised faith. 
So much faith that she was really obedient, not that she even knew what she was doing, I don't think, at the time, but she was obedient to care for God's people as the Israelites come in and she cares for the spies and she protects them. She saves their lives, therefore giving hope and just even allowing the, what happened in Jericho to come to fruition. She exercised faith in the face of not being one of God's people. Here, contrasted to Rahab, though, look at Achan. Achan is an Israelite, one of God's people. Not just heard the stories of God, not just heard the stories of all that he had done, but seen firsthand his provision and his care and how he had lifted up the Israelites, led them in the desert. And he's the one who acts like the Canaanite, disobedient to the word of God. So when we look at chapter seven, and sometimes you might wonder, we might ask ourselves, man, it seemed like Achan was dealt with pretty harshly. God judges sin, and sin is always dealt with. It's not going to be hidden away. We can't hide from it. We can't run from it. And it has to be dealt with harshly. This is why we so often say, be killing sin or it be killing you, the old quote. The reality is we need to come to this understanding is that when there's sin in our lives, those small things, those things that we might peddle away as, oh, it's not that bad. It's just a little bit here, a little bit there. That little leaven that messes up the whole loaf. We need to deal swiftly with it. We need to deal strongly with it so that we can turn away from it because it just takes a little bit, just a small little lie that begins to convince us to take us off the course that God has us on. But isn't it amazing? We see Rahab who had in some ways, no reason to be redeemed, no reason, there's no hope for her life. And in the Lord's kindness and mercy, he redeems her because of her obedience, because of her faith. It says in Hebrews, she was saved because of her faith. And Achan had seen all that God had done, and he still didn't have enough faith to trust God, to trust God with what he had said, what he had promised. I might need to take this. I'm not sure God will provide for me. What we see, though, and after the sin is dealt with in the beginning of verse 8, or excuse me, chapter 8, verse 1, is that God is a great restorer, though. See, we deal strongly with sin. We deal aggressively with sin. And we do that in faith, knowing that as we deal with sin, and even as God roots out that sin in our lives, that he is restoring us. That's why the psalmist David would say, he restores my soul. He restores us. Once sin has been de dealt with, God begins restoration. And he tells Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. We talked about this last week, but we know that Joshua, it seems, we're kind of coming to an understanding, a better understanding of exactly why Joshua need to be told this over and over again. From the very beginning of chapter one, he's told, be strong and courageous. Here, God in chapter eight is telling him again, don't be afraid, be, don't be dismayed, be of courage, Joshua, because he was so easily tempted to sort of, a, kind of, we could pick up that he must have been very easily kind of led away from that. And led to question and doubt, even his own abilities led to doubt what God would do. Fear and discouragement would quickly paralyze Joshua. And so God makes that promise as he does over and over. And we see he makes a promise. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. I have given this city into your hand. I have. 
He's already done it. He makes the promise and then he gives them the command to go. How often we let past sins, past situations, so many things from our past paralyze us and prevent us from being faithful, from being obedient, from stepping into what God has called us to. I think when we do that, when we let sin paralyze us, one of the reasons is, is that too often we've never really dealt with the sin in our lives. We've never fully repented of those sins. See, the world has told us, and as Christians, we've bought into a little bit of this lie that we can just sort of dabble in it and maybe turn our back from it, but never actually deal with it, never get to the root of the sin issue, never peel the onion back to really understand what in our hearts was leading us away from God. And we just say, okay, I'll just kind of stop doing that. And we just turn from that sin to another sin. And we just sort of live our lives that way, never really turning away and killing the sin and getting to the heart level reason. Why are we so tempted to believe that this small lesser God is worthy of our worship? Why do we fall into that trap? And then as we deal with that, then we go out and go on through our lives, not having fully dealt with the sin, it becomes this thing that paralyzes us. And do you see the strategy of the enemy in that? If we put our faith in Christ, he knows that our lives are not his. Our hope is secure because Christ has secured it for us, not because it's not based on what we do or don't do. It's based on what Christ has already done. But if he can tempt us to forget that hope and for sort of lose the focus on Christ and stop worshiping him full with our entire lives and be tempted and led astray into these small, what we might consider small sins, just dabbling here and there, never really dealing with those sin issues, and then we become paralyzed with fear, paralyzed with anxiety, paralyzed from doing anything that God would call us to do. Because we don't really know, we haven't really ever experienced the complete restoration that God offers just as he offered it here to Joshua. These are the lies that I think we often hear. We doubt whether God would be willing to restore us. Do you ever say to yourself, he would never fill in the blank, whatever that past sin is, that past Experience that past situation, we say he would never forgive that. He would never do that. Or if we don't doubt his willingness, even greater than that, we may doubt his ability. We might not say to ourselves, and the enemy doesn't whisper in our ear, he would never forgive that. He would never do that. But we might say, or we might hear, he can't. He can't overcome that. That sin is too dark. That sin is too grievous. That sin, if it came to light, would destroy. No, God would, he can't do that. It's too much for God. Or maybe we just believe too often that he won't. Not that he's not willing, not that he's not able, but somehow we've believed the lie of the enemy that says he won't restore me. He'll hold that back. Brothers and sisters, do not fear. Do not be dismayed. 
God will surely give you the victory because it's yours in Christ Jesus already. Notice the tense that God uses here. See, I have given. Y'all know I'm not good at English. But that's past tense. I have given already. The city had not fallen physically, literally. The people of Israel had not even gone in. But God, in his sovereignty, is saying to Joshua, I have already. And God is saying to you, I hope, I hope you're hearing it, Holy Spirit, Break down walls so that no ear, no heart could be blocked from hearing this. God has already given you the victory through Christ Jesus, not based on anything that you have done, could do, would do, will do, but surely based on the foundation of what Christ did on the cross. It's already done. We live in this tension. I get it. We live in the tension. That that is already the reality. That's already true. But for some reason, in God's mystery of how he works things out in his sovereign plan, we're living in the not yet. It's already true. It's already secured. It's already sure. There's no doubting it. There's no questioning it. There's no inability of God. But we live in the not yet. And because we live in the not yet, we struggle to remember that. that. And we're still prone to wander. We're still prone to forget. We, like Joshua, need to be reminded. That's why we're here this morning. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. I have already given the king into your hand. That's the promise of God over our lives. And we need to remember that. Now here is where one of the great mysteries of how God works comes sort of face to face or we come face to face. After God says, I have given this into your hand, the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land, he tells him what to do. He gives a command. And in verse three and following, God gives very detailed instructions as to exactly what he's supposed to do. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men, not just two or 3,000, but the entire army of valor, and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you, this is to the 30,000 men of valor, you shall rise up from from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out. And they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. So God says to Joshua, I have already given this city into your hand. And then he gives him very clear instructions on exactly how he is supposed to take this city. From a militaristic standpoint, we see sort of the strategy that's given. 
They had gone up, just two or 3,000 of them. They had thought they were coming out against, the, 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 the enemy came against them. They fled, 36 of their men are killed. So, hey, we're gonna do the exact same thing. We're gonna go up. They're gonna think, hey, they came back for a second beating. So we'll just kind of chase them out of the city. We'll beat them up. We'll kill some more of their men. But you lie in ambush. Very strategic sort of a, a setting that God gives to Joshua on how he's supposed to do this. And this is where that mystery comes face-to-face, or we come face-to-face with this mystery. We talk a lot in this church because we have such a high view of God, a right biblical view of God, that he is sovereign over all things. He has given the city into their hands. He has perfect control. He will do exactly what he intends to do. And yet, the Israelites are to execute God's plan perfectly. This is how you are to do what I intend you to do. God's sovereignty married up against human responsibility and what we are called to do. So yes, we trust and we believe and we have confidence and our hope is in the sovereign God of the universe who will accomplish his great purposes for us, the task that he's, that he, whatever he wants to do will happen exactly how he intends it to do it. But the way that he accomplishes his plans is through obedience of his people. As we follow the Lord and we are, follow the word that he has given us and the instructions that he has given to us, he says, you have to do exactly as I say. Don't just send a few, send the whole army up. By the way, this shows that everybody's going to be involved. They can send. Now everyone is going to be involved. Everyone is going to demonstrate faith as they go up to the city and they trust in the promise that I've made. God's made us a promise, He's made us many promises. Those promises are all rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He will save us from this broken world. This place is not our home. He will use our witness, our obedience, our faithfulness to bring salvation to the world. We are the salt and the light of the world. That's who we are. That's a promise that he's made to us. And so we know that those things are true. We know that in his sovereignty, those things are true and they will happen. And then he calls us, based on those promises, to be obedient, to be a holy people, a people set apart for his own possession, to be salt and light, to do the things that he's called us to do, to live differently in this world than everyone else lives. That's the way that he will accomplish his plans. And so as we think of God's sovereignty, that's not a calling or not an out to say, I don't have to do anything, everything's up to the Lord. No, It's a confidence that God will use as we are obedient to him and we do everything that he's called us to do, live in total obedience to his life, that through that obedience, he will accomplish his great and mighty purposes. And what an amazing thing. As we heard those testimonies from that video, I can't help but think of, it was the obedience of so many people to say that we will do what God has called us to do, even very hard things And as we do those hard things, we're doing those in faith, trusting and believing that God will accomplish his purposes in the world through us. And in some mysterious way, we're going to be involved. And what a blessing it is to be involved in God's great work. Have you ever been involved in something and you thought, 
That really wasn't that exciting. That didn't really work out too well for me. Or maybe it worked out great, but it's just, it wasn't all that great. One of my favorite quotes is this idea that the worst thing that can happen to us, one of the worst things that can happen to us is we can accomplish all of our dreams and all of our desires and find out that they were meaningless. We find out they don't satisfy. We chase after all these things of the world and then we come to the reality that they're nothing. What a hopeless What a sad place for us to be. And yet, God in his sovereignty has redeemed you, has called you his son or his daughter, and called you to an obedience and said, through your obedience, through your holiness, I will accomplish the great plans that I have. The cosmic plans of the universe will be uh, unfolded and occur through your obedience right in front of your face. What an amazing gift that is to be involved in what God is doing. God is sovereign, and we're called to be obedient to who he's called us to be. Last lesson I want to just highlight for us is back to verse 2, this summary of the events. God says, I've given the city into your hand, and here an amazing little note that God gives us. Whereas in Jericho, God had said, you don't take anything, don't touch anything, destroy everything. If Achan had just been able to trust God and live in obedience to God, he would have heard these words. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Everything in this city is yours. It's my joy to bless you and to take care of you Trust me, in my timing, according to my ways, I will provide for you. And Achan, unlike Rahab, didn't trust God in spite of all that he had seen, all of the testimony that was before him. And if he had just been able to wait, had been just able to be obedient and trust God, he would have enjoyed God's provision and more abundantly than he actually ever experienced it from Jericho. Obedience is what God is after, friends. Obedience to who he's called you and I to be. We should trust him. We can trust him. Because as the psalmist said, he restores our soul. He is the great restorer. We have hope. We can have joy. We have peace because of how much he loves us. I hope you'll remember that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the great restorer, that in you, I and we who are called by your name have hope. I thank you that we can hold on to the promise that you've made through David, the psalmist again, surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. And today we live in this season of waiting, in the not yet. And because of that, we experience brokenness. We experience real trials, hardships. 
And I pray for every soul in this room, Lord, that you would remind us of the promises that you've made. And in spite of what we see, would you help us to cast our hearts and our minds to that future reality and to trust in your sovereign plan that you have already secured for us hope and a victory that is eternal, that cannot be shaken. It will not fade. Help us to remember that this morning, Lord. We pray these things in your mighty name. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.